This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob Singh, the Executive Director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And I'm Eric Dietrich. I'm General Counsel at the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services. October 8th, and we're glad to be back. Um, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about, again, you know, some news items that captured our attention and continuing our conversation about the courts. Um, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the trial courts and the Court of Appeals. Today, we'll pick back up on that conversation, starting with the Court of Appeals and then heading into a discussion about the Supreme Court. And as we do every week, we'll end the episode with what is giving us hope. So, Eric, so this past week, uh, what's captured your attention? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. Just a few hours ago, I heard that um, six individuals in the state of Michigan were being charged for uh, attempting to kidnap their governor. So that's on my mind uh, as of now. But no, I mean, before today, it's been it's been a pretty interesting week. Um in terms of the things that I know we're both interested in, um, policing, um, the way people are being treated in our correctional facilities, but basketball, it's the NBA playoffs. It's the NBA finals. And, um, you know, it's been fun at least to try to get back into somewhat of a normal, um, state of mind and, you know, remember what it was like to watch something you enjoy um, before the pandemic hit. So, you know, basketball has been fun. And with that, um, you know, there's, there was some interesting political stuff that came up during sports coverage of the NBA this week. And, um, you know, one of the, the issues that came up was, um, and this came from, you know, Senator Ted Cruz, and this is, I guess, what elected officials do now is they tweet about random things. And so he had, you know, attacked the NBA for its low ratings and attributed it to their social justice policies, which, you know, led to a response from the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban. And, um, you know, he stood up for his players, he stood up for his team, and he stood up for the league. And, you know, again, it's just really interesting to see in sports, you see it in the NFL right now, you're seeing it in the NBA how these leagues and these players respond to what's happening in our communities. Uh, let's be clear. Mark Cuban dunked on <laughs> Ted Cruz. <laughs> like it was, it was, it was, uh, I, I commented on this um, on my social media because I was just like, this was, it was, it reminded me of like a high school scrub talking to like some college athlete or some ex NBA player, you know, trying to challenge them. And, that player just dunking on that high school scrub, you know, it, that's what it felt like. It, it was just, uh, it was both like both fascinating and exhilarating and awesome to watch, but also, uh, pretty brutal. Cause Mark, Mark Cuban just kind of just destroyed him, I think. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, I think like the NBA, it's been, it's been really interesting to watch, um, the NBA kind of stand up and lean into the conversation and, you know, for me, yeah, I maybe think, we should take it for granted. I mean, can you talk about some of the things the NBA's done um, 
actively? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's always more that it could do. I think, you know, this is, for me, it's been fascinating to watch because it's the intersection of so many different sort of issues, right? You have labor, labor practices, exploitation, um, issues that come up with, you know, there's always been this undercurrent of whether you're looking at collegiate or professional, like, but this exploitation of athletes, right? That's always like something that, that comes up. Um, you have predominantly black players uh, in the NBA that, you know, are being impacted by our policies in this country and white supremacy. And then you also have the COVID sort of weirdness of the NBA playing in a bubble um, without fans or anything like that. And so it's like the intersection of all these things that are being played out uh, uh, with the NBA and what we're seeing on television. And um to me, like, you know, first and foremost, I think they've been, uh, since Colin Kaepernick took a knee, the NBA was the one sports league that actually supported their players protesting, which I thought was really great. And owners allowing or, you know, uh, acknowledging uh, that that's an important thing. And you had coaches like, you know, Coach Steve Kerr and uh, Greg, um, what's his name from the San Antonio? Popovich. Popovich um, you know, being very vocal and critical uh, about the things that have been going on in this country. And then yeah, what we've seen in this bubble, um, you know, NBA players allowed to wear on their uniforms. Of course, it was pre-approved by the NBA, but social justice messages, social justice messages in support of Black Lives Matter on the court, messages by players like infomercials that have been put out. Um, and then I think the most stunning thing is the thing that's been started by LeBron James and a bunch of other players and celebrities called More Than a Vote, where they are working actively to... Um, protect and encourage uh, the voting process um, and, and encouraging people to come out and vote uh, during this upcoming election and recruiting poll workers. I think they've gotten up to like 20,000 or something like that at this point. So it's just been incredible to watch. Like I, I, for me, like seeing the intersection of politics and sports um, is really great. Like uh, sports have always been sort of um, injected into politics. Uh, it's never been separate. So this idea that somehow sports is like the sanctuary that's apolitical, I think is ridiculous. But as an NBA fan, as someone that grew up playing basketball and like really uh, loving um, uh, the NBA, um, it's it felt uh, at least that for me, like a little bit of a relief to have the one sports thing that I, that I really enjoy also not being shy about participating in this conversation. I wish it could be more, but I, I'm, Compared to the other sports leagues, I think the NBA is doing like a fantastic job. Well, that's what's funny about Ted Cruz talking about it is because when you look at like which governments, groups, whatever, and how they're dealing with the pandemic, I mean, the NBA has been amazing. They've created this bubble. They got buy-in from their players. Um, it's not an easy thing. I don't care how much money you're being paid to leave your family behind for months on end and eat cafeteria food, no matter how good that cafeteria food is. And they've done a really amazing job. And here we are at the NBA finals. You see baseball struggled. You see football struggled. Um, the NBA has done great while, you know, our government still can't get behind whether we should be wearing masks and whether that makes you um, a certain type of person if you wear a mask, um, politicization of masks. Um, you know, it's just the contrast between the two couldn't be any more stark. But you know, it was interesting. I, I read Chris Paul, you're right, talking about labor. You know, the, the players are unionized, and uh, Chris Paul, um, point guard, um, 
in the NBA, I, I believe is like president of the, or he's really high up in the, in the union. And he was talking about how few people in the league have actually voted before. Um, and that it was actually like less than 10%. And so I know there's been an active recruitment. And you had sent me an article, I think, about Udonis Haslam from the Miami Heat had never actually voted before. And I know they've been really invested in not only getting their players to vote, but, you know, urging others in the community to vote as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I think there's going to be basketball stadiums, like the arenas are going to be used as uh, in in other states where they have um, uh, uh, what is it polling precincts um, for voters to be able to come in and vote or drop off ballots. I mean, here in Oregon, we're we're fortunate and blessed to have mail-in voting, which you know is remarkable. When I like for me personally, like I grew up in Atlanta and then left when I was twenty three, moved out to California, lived there for a couple of years, then moved up to Portland when I was 25. So the few elections that I had prior to moving to Oregon was all about that experience of going and standing at a, at a precinct and voting. And it's always been such a bizarre uh, experience because one, it's not a holiday and I've never understood why we don't take the day off. Two, it, it seems like such a odd thing that we don't encourage our citizens or people who are eligible to vote to really vote, like uh, the voter turnout is always not that great. Like, I mean, you know, it's like, I think in the 60% or something like that, depending on what state or maybe even higher, like, but it should be close to hundred percent. Like we should have almost a hundred percent voter turnout in every election. And we should make it as easy as possible for people to vote and have what I think is now happening, which is you have early voting and vote by mail. But when I moved to Oregon and I was introduced to this concept of vote by mail, where I can sit at home, you get a voter's pamphlet, so you can read that like in advance of it. You can sit with your voter's pamphlet, read through especially all the down-ballot races, and actually make an educated, like uh, fill out your ballot in an educated way, eating food, drinking wine, whatever, like in a relaxed environment where you're not like in this like church or gymnasium or whatever it may be and trying to do something, you know, within like 30 seconds or a couple of minutes. But, um, you know, I, I think it's it's really great for these NBA players to to be out there and really trying to uh, encourage voting and make it easy uh, for individuals. I wish our government were doing that, but our government right now is currently trying to make it as hard as possible for people to vote, which is why I think that obviously the NBA is responding to that, but, um, or the NBA players. But uh, to me, it's really, um, it's quite inspirational and hopeful as well. Question, when you voted in Atlanta, cause I'm from Pennsylvania. So did you go, like when we voted, there was like a machine with like a curtain that wraps kind of around it and you would walk in and you close the curtain. And then what I remember, there was a bunch of like buttons you would align with which candidate you were supporting. And then when you made all your decisions, there was like a slot wheel thing on the side that you pulled and that memorialized all your votes. Was that kind of how it was? What I remember in Atlanta is I had a ballot and I think I stuck it into some sort of weird machine. And then I had like a little pin and then I would push individual holes on everything that I was voting on. I, I think that's how I recall that I voted. That sounds familiar. The broken Chad thing. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but the thing is, it's like, you know, you, on down ballot races, unless you really go in educated, which I did at that time, I didn't know half the people or at least three quarters of the people that, or things that I was voting on. You know, I just wasn't educated or informed. So you end up just like either voting for the incumbent or not voting. And so 
You know, I, I think this country, what's so fascinating uh, is that this country has the wealth, the means, and the technology to make voting uh, absolutely accessible to everybody and to make sure that voters are educated. And this country does the exact opposite of what you think that, that you should be doing to, to helping people vote. Like they closing down polls, they don't educate people, you know, they make the voting ballots. Like in, it's so very different in every state, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of nuts. And you already have like the president now out there talking about how the results are going to be like corrupt and, you know, uh, you can't trust it and things like that. So, you know, I, I think we're headed for like a circus, uh, <laughs> like a, a potentially... Yeah. Yeah, I saw Republican Senator Mike Lee from Utah today actually uh, tweet um, that democracy wasn't that important. It's order. And it's been really interesting. You, you, I mean, I don't know. There was a time when I was younger where if you uh, discussed elected officials and politicians trying to suppress votes, I think you'd sound like a bit of a conspiracy theorist. But I, we've entered the world where they're actually very comfortable talking about that in public now. The shame has gone away. Um, if you do not support a candidate, we want to suppress your votes. Um, you know, at least that's what we hear from certain people. So, yeah, there's a lot of things. Uh, I think like even five years ago, I would have <laughs> thought would have been impossible to say out loud, but it, it, we're, we're in a completely different era right now where yeah. people are saying any kind of nonsense. And, yep. you know, that seems to be the overriding thing. Um, yeah, for me, like the NBA has been really fun to watch. And I think that is, uh, um, and also see them step up in their activism. So I, I think that's a good thing for me this past week. I think what captured my attention was, you know, a lot of our work we do, uh, we do with people who are incarcerated or going through the system. Um, there was a federal court, a district court decision out of California that said that all individuals who are incarcerated are eligible for the stimulus check that came out earlier. Before, I think initially it was that uh, people who were incarcerated were eligible. So there were some people who were able to benefit from that, but then the IRS came out and said that they weren't eligible. And now the federal district court said that they are, and there's a deadline that keeps moving. Um, it was a class action suit bought by a law firm on behalf of incarcerated individuals around this. So this past week, we spent Monday, um, a couple of our staff people spent putting together packets and sending them into the prison so people could fill out um, these forms and understand how to fill it out and, you know, get it out before the deadline. It was October 15th. I think now it's October 30th. If you do it by paper, uh, if you do e-filing, it's not until November 21st. But for those who are incarcerated, it would be that they would have to complete it by paper. But um, it keeps shifting. I mean, obviously, this is just a federal district court decision. It can be appealed. Um, so the the federal appellate courts can reverse this or the federal government can do something. In addition, like people have to fill out this paperwork. They have to fill it out correctly. When the checks do come, they have to be sent to the right place. And whether or not the Department of Corrections in each state will even process them, I don't know. But, you know, this is, I think, important because uh, everyone in this country should benefit or should have benefited from that stimulus that came out and, um, you know, $1,200 is a lot of money. Uh, and you know, it could mean, uh, uh, quite a, quite a profound difference for those who are incarcerated. So, um, you know, we were excited to see it. We hope, uh, as many people as possible can figure it out. If people are interested in learning more about it, we have a resource page on our website that people can visit at OGRC.info. Um, but we're really encouraging, uh, you know, loved ones and family members to send in the paperwork to those incarcerated. But that was like a big news item. I think it was, um, you know, a nice, 
uh, we don't get wins very often. So this was like at least a moment where we have like a win and an opportunity for people to benefit rather than trying to push back against harms, you know? Well, and the other piece to that is that not, I mean, people, unless you're, you know, serving a life sentence or a capital offense. I mean, most people are going to get out of their facility and many of them are going to get out within the next year or two. And so having that cushion of money, I mean, when you get out of prison, the transition to getting back to everyday life is not easy in so many ways, emotionally, um, financially, et cetera. And so just having a cushion like that would be so helpful um, for individuals when they get out to know they're not you know, going to be on their own. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, every little bit of money counts. And I mean, e- even being able to pay for things while you're in custody, like the commissary is so expensive, phone calls are expensive. Um, you know, if people have children or family members, being able to have some money for them. I mean, uh, for correspondence, like right now, especially when in-person visits uh, are very limited or not at all existent, um, being able to write mail and have you know money for stamps and things like that, it's all critically important. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I know that there are so many issues on how we treat people who are in prison um, and the way in which we deny them certain opportunities. I know we'll talk about this in the future, but um, one of the things I've heard you talk about before, too, is the right to vote. And, um, you know, that's something uh, as we, it, it just hit me as we were talking about voting and we were talking about people in prison. Um, I know that um, your organization has done a bit of quite a bit of work on, you know, understanding and um, advocating around the issues of people being able to vote in um, prison. Yeah, I mean, right now, um A lot of states don't allow individuals to vote if they've been convicted of a felony. So um, that already disenfranchises a good percentage of the population. And we're seeing that actually play out in Florida where there was legislation that was passed that reinstated the vote. But now we're seeing tremendous sort of obstacles being put in place to allowing that to people to be sort of re-enfranchised. And some states like Maine and Vermont and now D.C., although not a state, incarcerated individuals can vote uh, in those states. So even if you get incarcerated, you're convicted of a felony, um, they can still vote while they're in custody. In Oregon, you know, we are fortunate that people, once they leave prison, they can vote. They have the ability to vote. They're not disenfranchised. Not often understood or people don't know that, but I do think like it is an important thing to be, uh, an important way to stay connected to your community is by voting. And there are studies out there that show that allowing people to retain the right to vote actually helps with recidivism rates because, you know, you have a way to be able to participate and have a voice. And in Oregon, incarcerated individuals can't vote, but that is something that we're working on. I mean, in Oregon, it's, um, it would be pretty simple to do. We just need a simple majority in the legislature to statutorily amend um, existing laws, but it's not it's not prohibited by our constitution or state constitution and we have mail-in voting here. So all it would really require is us putting like a ballot drop off uh, box uh, at each one of the prisons at the 14 prisons. And, you know, it'd be pretty simple to do because the the logistics of how we vote here um, make it. So not always the case in every um, state, but like even in our constitution, it already 
accounts for what your residency would be. So even if you're incarcerated, let's say out in Eastern Oregon or in a Salem prison, you're basically your last residence would be what it is that um, that would count for residency for voting. And that's where the, the provision are, are identifies like a number of different situations in which you may not be present, whether it's like you're abroad or, you know, you're, you're in some other institution or facility like a state hospital or something like that. So it's not just for people who are incarcerated that defines that residency, but um, so it, it's pretty simple. Um, and the only reason why people have been denied the right to vote, it has all to do with um, uh, white supremacy, racism. I mean, that's where it all stems from. No, I mean, when you think about how we treat each other within our community and our country, I mean, if you convict someone of a crime and then you invent a million collateral consequences that hurt them and impede them the rest of their life, how do you ever expect that person to like come around and be a normal part of society again? Uh, if you treat people antisocially, they, that's, that's what you create. And so the more mm-hmm. we can do to eliminate these barriers and right, get people, I mean, regardless of their action, they're still a part of the community and we need to treat them that way. Um, there are dire consequences when we completely ostracize individuals. Um, and we, we need to find a healthy criminal legal system. We need to find a way to make it healthier um, so that we don't keep treating people like this. That's exactly right. I mean, I think like we've talked about how 95% of the people are going to be coming back into our community after a term of incarceration. And, you know, we've seen this like in European countries in Oregon, at least prior to COVID was really, really leaning into the Norway model, which really sort of uses the value system that the removal from society, the incarceration, or that removal is, is the punishment itself. But like, denying individuals sort of the benefits of what the community is able to access, that's beyond the punishment. So when they are incarcerated, they still retain all the abilities to access like good food, education, healthcare, the right to vote, like all these things that we assume are our rights and privileges within our community. They keep those as, as they go into incarceration. And it's that removal that is the punishment itself. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. If someone is a danger and they need that time away and it, to be incarcerated uh, and removed from society, that, that's enough. But the more that we dehumanize individuals and deprive them, I think to the point you're making, you know, they will respond accordingly. I think that feels like human behavior 101. You, you treat someone like uh, a second-class citizen, they're going to act like a second-class citizen. You can't citizen. get housing, you can't get a job, <laughs> you can't get student loans, you can't vote. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah, you can't drive, you know. You can't drive. You know, and then there's like, a, 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 what is it, like um, this complicated web of fines and fees that no one understands. Um, that people, oh, we'll, we'll have to dedicate a whole episode to that. That's a whole, that, the Florida disenfranchisement and their fines and fees scenario is worthy of its own discussion. Yeah. Well, so that's that's uh, sort of what captured our attention, I guess, this past uh, week. Um, you know, this was uh, fortunately one of those weeks where it felt like the intensity of the news, at least locally, wasn't uh, what it was for the past month, which was nice. There was still an incredible amount of things that are happening here locally, both with like local law enforcement and other political stuff. But, um, you know, we weren't dealing with a natural disaster. We weren't dealing with, um, you know, uh, I guess we're still dealing with like the law enforcement issues. I guess to some extent that's leveled off, but 
you know, uh, I guess, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like anything super crazy happened um, this past week. I mean, crazy things are happening. Let me, let me say that. Crazy, unconstitutional, violent, ugly things are happening. But um, there wasn't something sort of outside or extraordinary to that. So you know, just the normal. Just, just the normal crazy. Yeah. Oh my God. This is what this is. This is what we've come to now, right? Yep. Um, yeah. It was funny because I was talking to our communications director earlier this week, and you know we try to like plan and organize and like say, okay, this is what we're going to focus on for the next month, the next three months. And I finally just gave up and said, look, we're just gonna all we're going to do is work in forty-eight hour cycles because like it's. It doesn't make any sense to do otherwise because things just change too much. And, um, you know, we're just responding and reacting to too many things like to plan out more than that seems kind of ridiculous at this point. So maybe it's like my own sort of like uh, mental acceptance of that. That's like allowed me to be more Zen this week. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, But, you know, so, uh, you know, segueing now into uh, returning back into our conversation about the ports. The courts. Yeah. So what I'll do is, I'll, you know, I'll spend like just a few minutes um, setting, like just kind of uh, summarizing where we've been and then, you know, hit you up with some questions about okay. the courts again. So 36 counties in Oregon, we have trial courts that we call circuit courts here in Oregon. They're called something different in every state, but effectively every state has this sort of basic court of general jurisdiction where they are seeing um, cases or conflicts of all uh, uh, of all kinds, so whether it's family law, real estate, criminal, um, you know, tax, whatever it may be. But these are the the courts that people go to, and as we talked about, uh, really trying to um, there is a conflict that occurs. There is uh, a fact pattern that exists, or facts that exist, and there's sort of controversy in understanding. Uh, what the facts are, like in the sense of whose version of that of, of that story is true. So we go to the courts to kind of resolve that. Um, that it's factual like the people's dispute. court. Remember the people's court? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Is that still around? I don't know. <laughs> the TV court. I know Judge Judy. Is she still around? I think she is. All right. But yeah, but basically like you go to these courts and the idea is to resolve a factual dispute. In the criminal legal system, what we're really talking about is the state is alleging that an individual conducted a behavior that violated some sort of statute, um, which is a law. And that person is given a public defender if they can't afford or uh, hire their own uh, criminal defense attorney. And then you have the public defender representing the individual and the state represented by the prosecutor. And you go to trial court. And so basically at that point, what we're talking about is trying to figure out factually what happened. Uh, It's a, it's a fact-finding court. Was um, there an assault? Was the assault um, justifiable? Did it not happen at all? Did it happen? Was there a DUI? Right. I mean, there's there's allegations of did some behavior occur? And if it did occur, um, is there a defense to that behavior or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's all sorts of procedural rules that uh, shape how the case is adjudicated, but that's exactly um, how it goes. Yeah. And those rules are both in statute. So the legislature prescribes a bunch of rules by which the courts must operate and attorneys must operate and what's allowed in as evidence, what's not allowed in as evidence. And there's also court rules as well. So each court in the county 
uh, sort of promulgates its own rules uh, based off what the Supreme Court has sort of issued. Um, and so there's each, each jurisdiction has its own sort of practice, its own sort of culture. Um, so we're really talking about, again, facts. So once that terminates, so most criminal legal case or most criminal cases resolve in plea negotiations. So you have a conversation between the defense attorney and a prosecutor and you usually come to some resolution. So most cases don't go to trial. If cases go to trial, typically the factual determination or the fact finders are jurors, um, depending on if it's a misdemeanor or felony, it'll determine the number of jurors, or you can go before a judge, like a bench trial. Um, and then once someone is, a say, uh, found guilty of a crime, so they're found guilty of uh, whatever they're alleged to do, um, that is appealed. So last week you did talk about that process of like what what happens at that point. So do you mind just like summarizing that? Like once once a case is concluded, um, the differences between plea and trials sure. and sort of like what the mechanism is to get into the court of appeals. Right. So the court of appeals, um, you have a right to an appeal in Oregon. So if you do want to file an appeal, the Oregon court of appeals will accept the case for review um, typically, as you said, most cases are resolved by plea deals, you know, more than 95%, if not more, at least in Oregon, um, are resolved by pleas rather than trials. And if you enter a plea, you really don't have any capacity to do an appeal because you've walked into court, um, either pled guilty or in a contest to the offense and, um, the, you know, there's all the evidence in the record to convict you then because you've walked in and basically, you know, admitted um, to the crime. So there is a limited window in Oregon where um, if you file like what was a certain type of pretrial motion, like if you think the officer searched your car or house illegally or arrested you unlawfully, you can... Um, you know, if you lose a motion to suppress or other pretrial motion, you can do what's called a conditional plea, um, which means you're entering a plea conditioned upon the Court of Appeals agreeing that the child judge got it right. It's really not a common thing to do. So um, for the most part, what goes to uh, the Court of Appeals are cases that go to trial. Um, those are the cases that can be appealed um, to the court of appeals. Um, and like I said, they will, they will review your case. Um, they will take the case. And what they're really looking for, as we talked about last week is, you know, they're not second guessing the jury or the judge. It's not the court of appeals job to say like, well, I, I'm looking at this evidence. Um, and I really think the assault was justified. I don't, you know, or I, I, I don't think there's sufficient proof. Um, uh, that that person drove impaired from alcohol. What they're really doing is reviewing those legal procedures that the trial court followed to see if the legal procedures were followed correctly mm. um, to make sure, you know, the evidentiary code was complied with hearsay. We all know about hearsay. It's not admissible, right? Um, except it always is under some exception, but you know, that, that's, they're looking at, you know, the evidence code, constitutional principles to see if the process that led to the person being convicted 
was a legally correct process. That that's the role of of the direct appeals. Yeah, and some you know additional differences like structurally that we talked about is so with the trial courts you have thirty six counties, thirty six courthouses, and you have thirty six essentially public defender agencies or contractors or whatever. So your agency doesn't um, actually employ those individuals, but we contract with public defenders. Um, and same with the district attorney. So each just each county has its own district attorney, its own prosecutors within those offices. And so we're talking about basically 36 different systems, more or less, in play at the trial court level. Once we get up to the appellate, uh, structurally speaking, and we have judges like, you know, trial court judges in every one of those courthouses. And often those judges are doing a mixed docket, like you're having both civil and criminal cases. So you have those judges, they're elected. Um, we talked about that and the politics behind that. Then we get up to the Court of Appeals. And then we have more of a unified appellate system where we have the Department of Justice, which is a singular organization based out of Salem that's doing all the appeals on the state side. And then your agency, which actually has two divisions, right? You have the administrative side, and then you have the appellate division, which actually employs appellate defenders that represents those individuals on appeals. And that comes through your office, going to a court of appeals that has 13 judges, and the 13 judges sit in three judge panels um, and over, you know, hearing the cases. And again, trying to resolve legal issues, not factual issues, but questions of law. And um, you know, we talked about how this is like a policy-making court because once they interpret a law, um, that becomes then applicable to like every case below it, like at the trial court level. And sometimes, and we'll talk about this now when we get to the state Supreme Court, but you could have conflicts or tensions between different decisions that different panels of Court of Appeals judges have ruled on. So I think one of the most like robust areas of law in Oregon is under search and seizure, like under, um, you know, the search and seizure provision here in Oregon, which is Article 1, Section, what is it? 13, 12, I can't remember now. Um, but 12 or 13, is it cousin <laughs> or a baby? Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember which one it is. Maybe it's 12, yeah. But, um, but we have our own search and seizure provision. So the judges are interpreting what are the boundaries uh, of what it is that law enforcement can do when they search uh, or seize an individual. And so every week there's usually at least one opinion on, on, on search and seizure. But not all that, because you have different panels, everyone's interpreting it slightly separately. And we'll talk about what that means now, like going up to the state Supreme Court. But yeah, anything else you want to mention about the Oregon Court of Appeals? Well, what's interesting about lawyering, um, and I was thinking about this as I was just thinking about politics, is, you know, judges, it's not just that they interpret, um, you know, the law. There's actually rules that govern how they interpret the law. So, I mean, I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, appellate judging, um, it, it's a very rule-based process. Um, it's, and it, you know, that comes from the law. It's, it's really embedded in logic, uh, deference to prior decisions, looking at the way prior decisions have been made. And, you know, one of the things the appellate courts do, you know, is sometimes it's not clear when the legislature passes a law what they intended that law to mean. And um, when a court looks at it, they just don't substitute their own opinion. I mean, there are actually rules that courts follow to determine 
how they should go about determining what the legislature intended. So it it is a policymaking court. It's a very rule oriented court. Um, it, it's 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 a lot of paper. It's a lot of written materials. Um, and it's a very logic-based um, legal system. So um, I don't know. It's just very different than the trial level in, 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 in not only what goes on, but even the type of person who's kind of drawn to that work as an attorney or an advocate. Mm-hmm. It's just a very different type of work than trial, trial work is. And I think this is an incredibly important point that you that you that you're highlighting because you know to me like before I went to law school I, I couldn't tell you the difference between case law and statutes and stuff like that so you know what the courts are doing is the legislature will pass a law that's often codified in statute or what we call statute so there's the Oregon Revised Statute it's basically uh, volumes of books that have codified what are basically acceptable behaviors and norms in our society. And when you violate those, that's a violation of the law. So it helps provide guidelines for what it is that we can do in our society, right? Um, What the Court of Appeals does, and this is a complete hypothetical, this is not like a real statute or anything, but like let's say a statute says, you know, law enforcement officers cannot stop you uh, for your solely on your race or whatever, right? Like something like that or cannot stop you because you did X, right? So the question then becomes what the court of appeals will do. Like the legislature passes that the court of appeals then will try to interpret what did the legislature mean when they said stop? Is it someone when a police officer pulls you over? Is that a stop? Is it when the police officer pulls you over and like, detains you or stops you for, or, you know, like pulls you over and keeps you there for a period of time. Um, you know, like how long does a stop last? Is it, you know, like, can you do things that are beyond, you know, whatever that initial stop was created for? So, you know, sometimes the legislature will, like you said, pass a statute, but there will be some ambiguity as far as like what the specific language means or what they intended. And so, you want to hear what ambiguous one? This one cracks yeah. me up. So um, we have these offenses, driving under the influence of intoxicants, reckless driving. They're two separate misdemeanor crimes here in Oregon. Well, um, someone was prosecuted for their behavior on a skateboard, and it took the Oregon Court of Appeals to examine the legislative history behind our reckless driving statute and say, no, the legislature never intended that conduct to apply to someone on a skateboard. But In Oregon, there was a prosecutor who looked at that statute and said, there's a tool. I can prosecute this person for their behavior on a skateboard. And similarly with DUI, I mean, I had a case where my client was a Vietnam vet disabled um, and was in a disability uh, scooter and was in the lane, the bike lane uh, by some supermarket and a cop came up to him and uh, arrested him and they tried to prosecute him for driving under the influence of intoxicants for, um, I remember reading about this, being on his disability scooter. And again, uh, it, you know, sometimes the courts have to intervene and say, this is not what the DUI statute was intended to apply to. I remember reading an article about this. This was (laughs) hilarious. Like, but yeah, but it's that ambiguity. And, you know, like in Oregon, you know, we actually have a fairly rigid and, um, you know, pretty precise construction process of like how to interpret statutes. Like you look at the text, does the definitions make sense just on its face by looking at like a dictionary? Then you look at the surrounding statute to be able to see whether or not, 
there's other things around the statue that clarify, like, again, what do we mean by driving? Is it on a skateboard? Is it on a car? Is it on a, a disability scooter? You know, whatever it may be. Um, and then we go to legislative history. Like we look at, you know, what did the legislature put in its record? Um, what did people testify to? What did the legislature do as they passed the bill? Did they change terms? Yep. Those kind of things. Not every state is like that, where we have that sort of hierarchy of uh, interpretation. Other states, it's sort of like, it could be anything. You know, judges can just look at anything and make a decision. But in Oregon, we have we do have this like very sort of, and that's based off of, again, case law. So when when the legislature passes something, you know, we it's codified in statute. Then we interpret that statute and these appellate courts issue opinions. And those opinions reflect an interpretation of law and we call that case law. So whenever we look at a statute, we will do research. And that's a lot of what attorneys do. Like you do the research and you read about case law. How have courts interpreted this word or this statute? And you start with your jurisdiction because that will be what you mentioned earlier, like as precedent, that that controls. Like if, if the Oregon State Supreme Court has already talked about this, you know, driving under the influence on a skateboard, that controls. If some other court has like a Michigan court or Washington court, you can introduce that, but it's just what we call persuasive, right? Yeah, this is this is really interesting. You bring this up. That's exactly right. Uh, when you're before Oregon's appellate courts, you had better be citing other decisions from the Oregon appellate courts. That's what they're interested in hearing about primarily. Yes, if there is a similar like dynamic from the state of Maryland or Louisiana that. Um, you want to highlight and say, well, this is how that court and that state dealt with that problem. I mean, you can introduce it, but it's for the reason you're saying it's persuasive. It can help you in your argument. It is not, however, binding legal authority on the court. Um, They can look at it, but they're not going to rely upon it in their decision making. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And this is to me why I like the appellate side of stuff as opposed to trial. You're talking about the differences in personality, like at the trial court, it's a lot of like, you know, uh, managing your client, you're interacting with your client, you're trying to like dispute facts, there's investigation, you know, it, it's more sort of like in the trenches. Once you get up into the appellate side, you know, it's less client management in the sense of like appellate attorneys just have to touch base with their clients less frequently. Um, but it's more about that legal issue, that interpretation. And it's an intellectual exercise because you're looking at definitions, you're looking at other statutes, um, you know, you're trying to persuade the court to interpret Uh, to interpret the law in your favor. So that way you can either get like a beneficial outcome for your client or sustain the outcome for your client or reverse, you know, the decision that was done at the trial court. So often what you're saying, like uh, on our side is saying like, you know, as you mentioned, like in pretrial, you're saying you file a motion with the court, with the, with the trial court saying this piece of evidence shouldn't come in because the law enforcement officer violated the constitution in the trial court allowed it in and that impacted how the jury ruled. So up on the court of appeals, what you're saying is that that allowance or that ability to allow that piece of evidence in and that, that uh, law enforcement officer action initially violated the constitution. So that evidence should never have been brought in. And so you often see the court of appeals saying that's right. That law enforcement officer went beyond the scope of the constitutional authority that was an impermissible search. Therefore, everything that that law enforcement officer found can't be used against that individual. Therefore, the conviction is reversed. And it's often then sent back to the trial court based on that decision, saying like, 
this evidence is no longer allowed in. And then the district attorney has to make a decision whether to re-prosecute or dismiss the case, right? If that critical piece of evidence is no longer there, then, um, you know, the DA may not be able to have a case. I think that's a key piece for people to understand is cases almost always begin and end at a trial court. They rarely end at an appellate court. So when there's an opinion issued, that case is going to be sent back to the trial court for the advocates and the judge to follow the legal opinion provided by the judge. They, but they rarely end at the court of appeals. Um, they usually go back down for, for further decision making. Yeah, typically it's like instructions, right? Like yep. they, they, they give it down, like you didn't sentence this person properly or this piece of evidence was illegally uh, procured or, you know, it came through illegal means. Yep. You know, trial court do something different based on this decision. And then then, Mm -hmm. if you don't like that decision, we have the Oregon Supreme court. Exactly. So this is, so this is what you, so you'd mentioned before, like in Oregon, if I go to trial, not a plea. So oftentimes plea, you can't appeal. That's part of the plea negotiation is that you waive your right to appeal decision. So if you go to trial, you had mentioned there's a matter you have, you have the right to appeal, right? So, and you get that, you get that with the court of appeals, but when it comes to the Oregon Supreme court, um, you can't make them take your case. You petition uh, the court and ask them to, and you know, weekly they publish uh, a list of the cases they have elected to take, but they don't take every case. Um, in fact, they, they don't take that many cases at all. I mean, they really are the policy court for the state. And so if you look at the volume of cases that goes through the court of appeals, I, um, it, it's worth noting too, that, um, even though the court of appeals by default makes a decision in each case, they don't, and actually oftentimes do not write a legal opinion. Um, you know, they, they do publish legal opinions in, in certain cases, but a lot of them, after they review them, they just affirm the decision um, of the trial court. Um, that has an impact in and of itself. But no, the Supreme Court, um, they have to decide to take the case. Um, I actually don't know the rule of how many justices need to agree to it, um, but, I, but I know there is a procedure for determining which cases they uh, elect to hear. Yeah. I mean, so just to recap, you know, you have uh, uh, alleged action, you're indicted, you know, the state brings a case against you, you go to trial, you get convicted and sentenced, you can appeal that to the court of appeals, like if you have a trial, and that's a matter of right, like you get that, that's a direct appeal, although there are some process involved. You go to the court of appeals, so you have the first layer, the trial court, the second layer, the intermediate court, the court of appeals, in which you have 13 judges and then three judge panels. If you get an unfavorable decision in the court of appeals, like you mentioned, you can petition for review with the Oregon State Supreme Court. It is a discretionary court, with the exception of capital cases. Right. Death penalty cases go from the trial court straight up to the Supreme Court and bypass the court of appeals. That's the only criminal case that gets that automatic right of review up at the state Supreme Court. And that just has to do with the complexity of the cases, um, with death penalty cases. But by and large, the Supreme Court will, it weighs like a number of factors of whether or not it's going to take the case. And often, at least from our perception, like a Supreme Court will look and say, are there sort of conflicts or tensions in how the Court of Appeals have interpreted this? So are we getting like panels interpreting a specific action, like 
let's say law enforcement officer searches your car, are we getting like decisions from the court of appeals around what are the parameters around that that are either inconsistent, sort of in conflict, in tension, or created a brand new rule that's never been presented before, never implemented in the Supreme Court? When you petition, we'll look at all of that and decide, is it important? Basically, the decision, at least the way I look at it is, is it important enough for us to weigh in to clarify so that everybody in Oregon understands what the rules are? And, I, and that's really what it is, like, because we're talking about law. We're not talking about facts. But does everybody understand? Because the law identically creates the rules in which we operate. Like, do we have clarity on what 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 this law means? I think that's right. It's, you know, are there some incon- like one type of case they may take is are there is there some inconsistency in the current state of a law in a current subject matter area that they need to clarify or um, the written opinion published by the Court of Appeals, are there enough judges on the Supreme Court that actually think that's the wrong analysis? I mean, that's mm-hmm. another way in which they'll elect to take a case. Um, another way is if there are such changing norms that there is a desire to maybe overturn precedent um, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen terribly often. Um, you know, it's a big deal when we have Latin words for it. And so stare decisis is the principle that you, you know, you got, I hated that word as law school. <laughs> I hated that word too. Stare decisis. Um, but the decision stands. Uh, and so um, if there, you know, there are cases at which, um, you know, the highest courts, whether it be in state or in federal government, will consider revisiting precedent. Um, but yeah, it is usually to provide guidance to those lower courts. Those justices are seeing a need for them to actually step in and draft a legal opinion. And that's when then they elect to do so. So now we go back to like the structure. So we have 36 counties, 36 circuit courts, judges in all those counties. We go in public defender offices or contractors in all those counties, district attorney offices and prosecutors in all those offices. We go to the Court of Appeals and we have the Department of Justice that handles all the appeals for the state side. So they sort of consolidate and it comes up to the Department of Justice and they basically consume all the district attorneys. You know, they get, it becomes like a singular office that represents the state your office represents the individual, uh, the criminal defendant. When it goes up to the Supreme Court, same dynamics. We have the Department of Justice and typically your office, OPDS or OPDS appellate defenders that are usually the advocates in front of the court. Um, You know, we have judges in all the circuit courts. We have the appellate judges. And then with the state Supreme Court, we have seven justices that are similarly elected. But we see the same dynamics that we've talked about, like at the trial court and the court of appeals where you often have like a state Supreme Court justice that will step down um, before the election or an election. Um, there'll be someone that's replaced through the appointment process. I think the last five justices have been appointed by Governor Brown. And then those justices end up running as incumbents um, and often winning. And so I think like Governor Brown has had five justices and, you know, I can't say that I agree with like all her appointments uh, or even um, was completely supportive of it. But what we have seen is a shift away from what has happened in the past where we've had basically DOJ judges or DOJ appellate practitioners or attorneys being appointed to the, the state Supreme Court. Now, we've, we've started to get a little bit more diversity um, 
And I think that um, impacts the, the type of decisions that we end up having or the results of, uh, of when the Supreme Court does a, a review of a case. That's right. I think you learn based on the people you're around and the offices you are in. And there was a point, I think, when I was a brand new lawyer where if I remember right, five of the seven justices were DOJ alumni, like it was mm-hmm. really bad. And so it was very uh, skewed with uh, just a law enforcement perspective. And that's not to say that their biases are somehow, you know, morally wrong or anything. It's just that when you work for a law enforcement agency, which is what the Department of Justice is, and then you spend your career there enough to where you're being considered a candidate for a Supreme Court justice position. I mean, those those are the people you've been working with. Those, um, that's the perspective you bring. Yeah. And, you know, I think like it, it, it does matter. Like, I mean, no matter what, like you said, like you learn from the people that you're around that, that shapes your perception, your perspective and your understanding, even the experiences, right? Like, you know, I think for the first time we have like, um, what is it? Two trial court or no, a trial court judge, justice Nelson, you know, Justice Nakamoto came from like a civil rights background. Um, you know, Justice Duncan was an appellate defender herself. You know, so, you know, there is a little bit more diversity. I, I wish we had more criminal defense attorneys and even capital defense attorneys, perhaps like on, on the court. But we have seven justices. And in order to have an opinion, we need a majority for to be able to ha- issue a ruling opinion. Like with the U.S. Supreme Court, it's nine justices. And obviously that's in the mainstream sort of sort of conversation right now as far as what we're going to do with the Supreme Court. But at the state level, I mean, you have to remember, like the vast majority of criminal cases, uh, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated are at the, uh, happen at the state level. While the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously like the decisions they uh, create impact criminal legal uh policy and practices at the state level, really it's the court of appeals, the state court of appeals and the state Supreme Court that actually have like the most impact on a week to week or day to day basis um, on what's happening. So it's, it's really important that we pay attention to our state Supreme Court. And I'm glad you mentioned the U.S. Supreme Court, because, yes, if you are unhappy with your decision from the Oregon Supreme Court, you may think, well, I'm going to the United States Supreme Court because that's the next highest court. But I mean, the reality is, um, and this goes to, you know, the need to understand federalism where we have a state system and a federal system, the United States Supreme Court isn't going to interpret an Oregon statute. Um, Mm -hmm. If you don't like the way the Oregon Supreme Court decided uh, whether a skateboard can constitute a vehicle for purposes of reckless driving, you're stuck with the Oregon decision. The uh, federal judiciary and the federal United States Supreme Court will review federal law. So... If you are alleging, for example, that, you know, again, your constitutional rights, your federal constitutional rights were violated by law enforcement, and that's how the evidence against you was discovered, you could, you know, eventually take that case and petition the U.S. Supreme Court to review it. But um, they're not going to interpret Oregon law for us. That's up to us to do on our own. Yeah. And, you know, that's um, so our organization, we do a lot of amicus work at the state level. Um, so at the state Supreme Court, we are pretty active. We have a pretty active uh, amicus committee. And what an amicus brief is, is called a friend of a court brief. So when we see a case go up to the Oregon State Supreme Court that we think is really important around racial justice or social justice issues, we will write a brief in coordination off with the defense attorney um, to talk about these broader issues and why they matter. And we 
try to educate the justices about, you know, social science, medical research, or whatever, to help inform their decisions. So amicus briefs are all pretty common at the U.S. Supreme Court, pretty common at the state Supreme Court. But one of the things that we often struggle with is just what you talked about. So like, I think a perfect example of the state constitution versus a federal constitutional issue is what we're seeing around youth justice. So, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court have come out with like some seminal decisions around the treatment of youth and what it means under the Eighth Amendment, in largely meaning that we can't mandate life without parole sentences for youth, um, that they should have the opportunity, a meaningful opportunity for release, barring a very narrow uh, class of individuals that are found irreparably corrupt, which is a very high standard. So that's under Eighth Amendment. Under our state constitution, we have comparable provisions that, 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 that are corollaries to the Eighth Amendment. And when we see these cases going through the appellate system, you know, one of the things that we always are trying to encourage or uh, um, trying to push for is for appellate defenders at the Court of Appeals. I mean, it has to start at the trial court because you're limited to whatever the trial right. court says, right? You're limited to right. that record. If it's not brought up in that record, you can't bring it up on the Court of Appeals. You can't bring up a new issue if it hasn't been brought up. At because that they court. only review the prior decisions to see if they got them right. So that's right. right. You can't invent a new argument on appeal. Exactly. So at the trial court level, what we really want is people to push arguments based around our state constitution. So when we get to the Court of Appeals, we get the opportunity to interpret our state constitution and not the federal constitution. And if it's of an important issue, once we get to the state Supreme Court, we want the state Supreme Court to develop that issue under the state constitution because our state constitution, the federal constitution is the floor. It's, we can't go below that. That's the minimum standards that, that, that's required in this country. So the Eighth Amendment is the minimum standard for cruel and unusual punishment. But our state constitution can be far more protective. So we can create opportunities for our state to be better than the U.S. Constitution. And so when, when these arguments are going up, like we want people to push the state constitution argument because we actually want the Oregon State Supreme Court to be more robust and not feel like their decision is going to be overturned potentially by the U.S. Supreme Court. And there is a case, you know, in front of the state Supreme Court around youth justice that's primarily on Eighth Amendment. And it concerns us because we want the state Supreme Court to be very sort of liberal and progressive in its interpretation. But the concern is the U.S. Supreme Court will then use that case to review it and actually roll back Eighth Amendment protection. So this is where these tensions kind of play right. out. No, it's um, it, it's it, it's so funny when I was, you know, when I was a brand new attorney. I rarely cited federal law. We were almost taught to always rely on the Oregon Constitution for search and seizure, because when it comes to search and seizure, the Oregon Constitution was so much better protecting of individual rights than the United States Constitution. Um, we just almost ignored it because we knew we'd have better luck under our own. So yeah. um, those are the types of things that lawyers have to think through and um, figure out, you know, what type of arguments you do want to make and which rules, state or federal, you want to rely upon. And I think, you know, the importance of that thread that continues from the trial court all the way to the state Supreme Court is really important because what happens at the trial level dictates what happens at the Court of Appeals and what happens at the state Supreme Court. So it's really important for trial court attorneys, public defenders, to really understand sort of like the latest laws um, the interpretation of laws, where they're at, and to be very aggressive, sort of like in its motion practice to challenge 
uh, thing. So that way, what we call preserve issues, because even if they lose, even if you know, like you're going to file a motion, you're going to lose, you preserve that issue. So at least at the court of appeals, the appellate defender or at the state Supreme Court, if you should get up there, that issue is preserved to be able to be argued and perhaps changed. So when we talk about like this concept of impact litigation, often what we see like with organizations like LDF or ACLU um, is they try to find these really good cases at the trial level where they try to advance all these arguments, even knowing that they're going to lose. That's almost the intention because they want that they want that decision on the record. So that way they can appeal it and start arguing for a different interpretation at the court of appeals and then eventually the state Supreme Court. And this plays out exactly the same on the federal level. So at the federal district court, the court of appeals, and this U.S. Supreme Court. So we see these cases going up to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, especially from like the civil rights or criminal justice perspective. Oftentimes what you're seeing is very thoughtful, intentional strategy, right? You're, you're cherry picking the cases in order to get like the best fact pattern up in front of the Supreme Court um, so you can get the most favorable decision. We're often playing now defense because of the, the Supreme Court that exists at the, at the federal level, at the U.S. Supreme Court. But yeah, I mean, like, how did that play out for you being a trial attorney or a public defender at the trial level? I mean, how often did you think about that? And there is the tension between what's better for the community and what's good for your client, right? Oh, it, it's so interesting because, I mean, it's interesting the cases that make it up to appeal because they're a combination of like the worst fact patterns because obviously that's why a lot of cases go to trials because you can't reach a resolution. Um, and then you have these other cases where they are like heavily invested in and we you know, my agency's working on, on some right now. I'm sure, you know, there's a group of attorneys looking to extend the age, you know, the Miller Montgomery holdings um, on how we treat youth under the Eighth Amendment, trying to extend that um, based on brain science um, to other ages or other factors. And we see a lot of it right now. There's a lot of investment in those trial cases, almost knowing they're going to lose just to make a record, because as you were using the word preserve, I want to mention the reason preservation is you have to formally, it needs to be clear from the transcript of the case that there was a dispute that was like, they say preserved. What that means is like, it was a real decision that was evaluated in total by the court and a firm decision was made. In other words, if it was just some sort of a, uh, flip decision where it wasn't really debated by the parties, the appellate courts aren't going to want to intervene in something like that. They really want to resolve something that's been firmly litigated by the parties. When I was a practitioner, frankly, I mean, getting an opin appeal, opinion, getting an opinion from the Oregon Court of Appeals from one of your cases was like a badge of honor. First of all, it means that you're actually arguing the law, mm -hmm. which is what a lawyer should be doing. I... I had, I had weird issues I was interested in. Like, I mean, aside from search seizure, which you have to be interested in, I, I wrote a lot of motions, lost a lot of motions. But, I mean, I got some cases up to the appellate courts on preemption principles. Basically, the city of Portland's created a bunch of um, municipal crimes that, um, you know, at the time I was arguing um, – they weren't allowed to do because the state had exclusive authority to criminalize that conduct. But no, you're always looking for these issues. You talk to your coworkers, you talk to people in your office, you know, in my office, we had a week, a monthly meeting where 
it was kind of like law school. We all were assigned a recent uh, appellate opinion from the Oregon appellate courts, and we had to uh, present that to our coworkers and explain the meaning of it. Um, and there is a lot of strategy in trying to get something to the court of appeals um, that, you know, if you're being selfish and really interested, and I shouldn't say that, but I mean, if you're selfish and just really interested in creating law, you know, you also have to remember that you're advocating for a client and you could have a case that um, has a really neat issue that you would love to argue and, and, and take to those higher courts. But if the client wants to resolve their case in a certain way, you know, it's the client's choice. And so that's one of the factors too. You're not just looking for fact patterns. Um, you have to have the right client who, who that's what they want to do. Yeah. And, I, you know, this is like one of the biggest sort of distinctions between more traditional civil rights advocacy. So what you see, you know, like the ACLU and LDF and even like our organization will do where you try to find a plaintiff or like, let's say a police abuse case and you bring that case civilly, like you look for a good fact pattern, you know, this case is going to be like a hard case to litigate. You may lose, but what you're presenting or what you're thinking about is the long term. Like you're not only talking about like the trial, but the appellate and trying to reshape law. And you can, you can pick those. So the ACLU is like one of those organizations that's, you know, selective in the cases it takes because it's looking for primarily those impact cases. And with civil litigation, you have that discretion, right? You can choose your client. You can look for a certain set right. of facts. And this is what the LDF did from like the 40s onwards around public segregation, like Thurgood Marshall. Like they look for a certain set of facts, certain types of clients to really push the, the, uh, the challenges to legal segregation. With criminal you can't do that. You can't, I mean, you can look for facts and stuff like that, but like, you know, you, you can't tell someone to go out and commit a crime or, you know, you know, like no. you, you can't tell law enforcement officer to engage in misconduct. Like it, it just happens. And then, you know, you have to have that client that's willing, wanting to challenge it. But at the end of the day, most, most individuals want to just resolve their issues get out, not do any jail or prison time and get back to their normal life. Right. So, well, yeah, it, 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 I mentioned the scenario in which, you know, the client may not want to appeal. The flip side happens where the client's dead set on appealing and as an attorney, as an appellate attorney, you're looking at the fact pattern, you're looking at the transcript yeah. and you're like, Oh my gosh, this no. is going to create a new rule of law that is really bad. And yeah. You have to have those tough conversations with the client, but ultimately you do have to go with what the client wants. And yep. um, that can be really tricky when an attorney knows that their client is about to create really bad law for everyone in the state of Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and to me, I think that's one of the, the fascinating aspects and why I, I like to me, I enjoy criminal practice or the appellate side of it because, you know, you constantly have to react to, that like the client's interest is primary no matter what but then around that like if you get the opportunity to get up to the court of appeals uh, and and you know have the court of appeals weigh in on an ambiguity or a certain area in which you can push the law and then eventually convince the supreme court to take a case um it, it's kind of incredible because then you're talking about you know, trying to be affirmative and trying to think you have to be very creative in these situations because you're not given, you are, you are just provided whatever facts exist, right? You can't cherry pick those. So nope. it requires a lot of like intellectual sort of ingenuity and creativity, innovation, but there's also, it, it, you know, it, it's also great because you get to talk about 
what kind of conduct by state is appropriate, you know, um, under sometimes really bad facts. But it's in those situations where I feel actually the, the proudest because we can say, even for this individual who may have committed this very terrible harm or this very, you know, uh, yeah, terrible harm, um, there are expectations of our government that we have that even in this situation, this is unacceptable, that we can say on a principle, on a value, like we don't want this, right? And so to me, that's what I enjoy fighting for or advocating for is, is trying to find where those boundaries are and always like pushing us to think, what is appropriate for state actors? Well, that gives me hope. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, that's, that's, that's our basic conversation of court. So we start with the trial, we go to the appellate, um, both of those, you know, you get to go to court. Uh, we're talking about like a dispute of facts. Once we get to the court of appeals, we're talking about the rules or the laws that govern what happened at the trial court and began to argue about those uh, those kind of situations or like the con or the rules that govern conduct or behavior. And then the state Supreme court's completely discretionary, but so important. And if people are interested, I know it's, um, completely wonky, but every Wednesday, the court of appeals issues its opinion and there's a media advisory. So you can just read a summary of all the cases, but every Wednesday about eight thirty AM that comes out and every Thursday, the state Supreme court will come out with its decision. So fortunately here in Oregon, like it's a, there's a very easy way to track these cases both the Court of Appeals and the State Supreme Court have these things called media advisories where you can read summaries of the cases. And it, it's just fascinating. Like, I mean, it. Um, I still do it every Wednesday. Um. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and then, yeah, the Court of Appeals always has opinions, no matter what, every Wednesday, except if there's a holiday on Monday that it comes out on Thursday. State Supreme Court, oftentimes, more often than that, it feels like nothing comes out on Thursday. Um, when the opinions do come out, they, they are of utmost important because when the Supreme Court says something, that's the final word. Um, and so you have to pay attention to like what it is that they're saying, whether it's around like search and seizure, Eighth Amendment, whatever it may be, like they're going to have the final say and everyone has to adjust sort of their um, practice. Um, yeah. And then uh, on Fridays is when the state Supreme Court will tell you like what cases they're going to take for review and things like that, like their conference uh, summary or whatever. I don't know if it's every Friday. Is it every Friday or every other? I don't Friday? know if it's every Friday either or every mm -hmm. other, but um, um, they do publish that as well. So that's the basic life of a, of a criminal case, trial court, court of appeals. And then if you're, if it's really something that needs to be kind of cleaned up or resolved through disc discretionary review goes to the state Supreme court. What happens afterwards is something called collateral attack. This is when you can go into what's something called post-conviction. And maybe we can talk about that next week or some other time, but it basically replicates that, that hierarchy, right? So you have the trial court, the court of appeals, state Supreme court. And instead of being limited to the record, what you get to do is then be able to use that opportunity on collateral tax. Once you go through the direct appeals, which is the court of appeals and state Supreme court on a criminal case after your conviction and sentencing, you go into something called collateral attack where you get to argue outside of the record, where you get to say, my defense attorney was ineffective or the prosecutor engaged in misconduct or the judge did something that was unconstitutional. That's when you get to be able to attack the actor's behavior that actually were advocates in your trial or in, yeah. No, we should talk about this in a future episode because right now I think we're probably funding more PCR which stands for post-conviction relief, collateral attacks and convictions than ever. 
for two reasons mainly. One, the United States Supreme Court uh, invalidating Oregon's non-unanimous jury instruction, uh, non-unanimous jury verdict rule um, has opened the door for a ton of individuals to attack their conviction. And then secondly, um, the legislature and their changes to Oregon's death penalty scheme that was done in 2019 has... Uh, brought a, a, a decent number of people back into Oregon's courts to collaterally attack those convictions as well. So look so, forward to it. Yeah, maybe next week we'll, we'll, we can get into post-conviction and state habeas and talk about that. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the court system. That's the public defense system. That's the state system, you know, like the state prosecution, like, you know, that we kind of ran through over the past three weeks. And you know, it's complicated. Each one of those, we could always spend like far more hours talking about sort of the nuances, but hopefully this provided like some kind of overview and understanding of what the courts are, how they work in Oregon, and how we're really mainly talking about like the bulk of our system exists at the trial court level. Um, the bulk of that, 90, 95% is plea negotiations, 5% is trial. Of the stuff that goes to trial, then you're talking about the direct appeals. So, and most of this, I would say what, 98, 99% of the cases get resolved right there at court of appeals. Um, yeah, there's very few that go to the Supreme court. Yeah. And so if, again, then you go to the state Supreme court and it's discretionary review, you have to petition the state Supreme court has to accept that review. So we're talking about, you know, that's it for the, the, the criminal stuff. But when the state Supreme court does take something critically important to understand what it is that they're saying and to pay attention to who the justices are and to vote on them and to pay attention to who, who is on our state Supreme court. So yeah. Wow. All right. That was a, <laughs> a three week, a three week primer on the courts. <laughs> Not too bad. No, we got it done. Yeah, It was fun. I, I, I love, I love, I love talking about the courts and the appellate system. I think there's a lot of great, great opportunity and potential to really craft um, sort of policy and sort of norms and practices through the appellate system and advocacy, which is why, you know, we do a lot of amicus work. Um, so now that we're kind of wrapping up this uh, hour here or a little bit more, like we do with every episode, what gave you hope, Eric? So I went yeah. to uh, church this week for the first time in seven months. Um, and you know, our, our, I go to a, a downtown Portland. It's a Lutheran church, which is basically Scandinavian do-gooder types. And, you know, I hadn't been there since the pandemic hit. Um, our pastor had kind of reached out there, you know, having very limited services uh, on Sundays, two services a week limited to 25 people. So you have to reserve a spot ahead of time for social distancing and mask wearing. And my son and I went and it was, uh, it was just fun going back. And it was the thing that really impressed me was it was just so professional. I mean, they had the pastor and then, you know, the organist and a musician, the musician was the only one uh, with their mask off, um, you know, when he sang, but it was a little weird. You couldn't really sing because we're all wearing masks. And I don't know if you ever tried to sing in a mask. It doesn't work. So mostly we were just there humming to ourselves, hearing songs, participating in a ritual that, you know, we're not doing hardly at all anymore. And I don't know. It was just fun to go back and see people actually taking care of each other and trying to, you know, 
behave in the way that's the safest for everyone compared to what we're seeing by elected officials at the national level. It was, it was just, um, such a contrast and it was just so well done and thoughtful. Like we walk in, um, you know, part of the Christian faith is communion, which is the, uh, you know, the wine and the bread. So when you go in uh, with this COVID uh, service that they're having, they gave everyone like a little mini sealed thumble full of grape juice, not wine. My son was freaked out. He's like, they're not going to make me drink wine, are they? But, um, you know, and it came with a sealable wafer. It was just all so well thought out. And it just made me happy that people are really trying to find ways to do things that give them um, happiness, that give them value and do it in a way that's actually safe. Um, some people are doing that right now, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great to hear. I mean, I think like being able to re-engage with community is, uh, is uh, uh, really important. I think, you know, for me, um, so I, I'll stick with the faith theme. I grew up in a Sikh household uh, and, you know, kind of moved away from faith for a little bit of time. Uh, but I think for the past couple of years, me and my wife, and my kid, um, we've uh, engaged uh, in the Buddhist tradition. So we've been attending the Oregon Buddhist Temple and we've been doing online services on the weekend. And this you know, past couple of weeks, we've been doing that. We, well, we do the online services every week for the Oregon Buddhist Temple, but then there's a Dharma school for kids and then there's a Dharma exchange for adults. But you know, I think it is, it is that um, for us, like attending the service online, um, and then for our daughter Grace to be able to participate in the Dharma school, it is nice to be reconnected with community. It is re- it is really nice to be able to have some spiritual grounding uh, in this moment. I think to help with the basically very dynamic and sort of uh, intense world that exists, um, and to be reminded, like I think, like you said, like uh, there are people out there that are trying to. Um, build community in a way that's safe um, and, you know, keep those connections sort of vibrant and strong, which I think are really, really important for, for so many people. And I think, you know, for both of you and I who work in this area, it's intense. And the kind of things that we're talking about, like on a week to week or day to day basis, um, you know, can be overwhelming and can feel kind of disparaging. You know, I, I joke that we're, we're in the work of like low probability, high impact kind of work, that low, <laughs> low probability as far as like the winds. Yeah. Like we often don't get to have wind. So I think having the ability to have like a community and have that spiritual grounding has uh, been important. And it, it feels good to be able to like kind of have that back into our lives and, you know, attending that more regularly. So I, with you, I feel like uh, um, I think um, similarly sort of um, – satisfied with yeah. with that like you know uh feeling that so yeah that's a nice thing the, the only other thing i could think of was some other netflix thing i know every week i tell you about a netflix <laughs> documentary what, that i watch netflix thing I, I watched this documentary called um kiss the ground i don't know it, it's really amazing it, it, it i'd have to say like um if, if folks watch it, it's a new environmental documentary that talks about how we could reverse climate change by protecting our soil and that how we can um, uh, actually carbon capture or sequester carbon through better soil management. But, but through better soil management, we can have better food, better food practices, uh, which would make us healthier. And basically, it's like it feels like the silver bullet. You take care of our soil, then climate change, food, everything, diet, all that kind of stuff sort of resolves itself. 
it's it's narrated by Woody Harrelson, but uh, just a fantastic. I've documentary. seen The Martian. I know the importance of soil when they're on other <laughs> planets and they can't grow food. You need good soil. I, I really didn't understand. I didn't understand soil, like the difference between soil and dirt and desertification. But it's a great documentary. So okay. when I watched it, it gave me hope because it was like we could reverse climate change in this generation. Like our kids, basically, uh, could. Uh, see the rever- complete reversal of climate change if we engage in these practices or scale up the practices that are already occurring. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of worth checking out. But um, but yeah, so that's uh, another week. Uh, next week, I think we'll come back and talk about post conviction and collateral attacks, and um, you know, uh, and continue the conversation about the criminal legal system. So. Yeah, we'll see you next week. This has been uh, Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob and Singh. And I'm Eric Dietrich. Hope everyone stays safe and healthy, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.